Good morning and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live somewhere in Georgia. It is the seventh day of September 2014, and I'll be live here for the next hour. Coming up on the show today, we'll be talking about the surveillance state and new revelations. Well, not so new if you've been paying attention over the last few years. As well as two of the main people involved in this idea of a new world order slash global government, which would be Henry Kissinger and Zygmunt Brzezinski. The reason that these people are important is because a lot of the policy shaped around American politics and geopolitics is crafted around the idea from these two gentlemen. Now, Kissinger and Associates is a highly... I guess, respected in international politics as a group that would be able to lead us into the idea of a world conglomerate or a world order. And when we talk about the Kissinger and Associates group, we have to mention that David Rothkopf wrote a book about his time at Kissinger and Associates called Superclass which I've owned and I've read the majority of it and I still haven't finished it because I got sidetracked with other with other books and that's um typically the way it goes with me. I'll read um about half a book, get uh, enthralled with something else, jump over and start reading that one and then jump back and finish it and then jump back and finish the other one. So I'm kind of scatterbrained if you guys have ever listened to the show, you would understand that. But um, the important thing to note is that um, we are approaching something that could be very interesting, to say the least. And what I'm talking about is the idea of this synchronicity between the human being and machines. Now, most call it the singularity. I would call it, unfortunately, a very planned and calculated idea, a very planned and calculated strategy, and the way that they sell it, and I'm going to explain how they sell it a little bit later on, and for those of you that have listened to the show once again before, I do have a degree in marketing, so I understand how some of the manipulation happens. I have read Propaganda, which I recommend that everybody read. It's a hundred and, you know, less, it's 150 pages. It'll take you probably a day and a half, but in order to get the real gist of what's going on um, in Bernays' book, just read the first 50 pages. It's kind of like Tragedy and Hope. If you aren't hooked by the first 50 pages, I got nothing for you. I really don't. So that's what the show is about today, and um, possibly joining us later on this morning will be Josh Wiley of uh, OneStepBeyond.me. We actually finished recording our fourth um, segment of our podcast series, which um, Josh is going to have to put the, all this stuff together, and it will be um, it will be a challenging endeavor for him because it's it's a lot to um, it's a lot to take under. I mean, it's a big undertaking. That's probably the better way to describe it. So, without further ado, and without further babbling by yours truly, let's get right into the topics for our show today. Remember, I typically run a two segment podcast where I'll run one segment on Thursday and I'll run the other segment on the Sunday. But um, given the circumstances that I'm in, um, I'm only able to produce one podcast a week. So stay tuned because once everything has settled in my world, which will be a couple more weeks, I'll be back to producing two shows. And the majority of them 
will probably be taped to air much like this one because the sound quality is better and uh, I don't have any Skype issues. So there you go. And you actually get to pers you know receive content without my audio ducking and stuff like that, which I think we have figured out. So now we are moving right along. So let's get into the first article that I wanted to cover today, and there's going to be a common theme or a common thread to this. And that is, and this will probably be very popular amongst everyone, um, redactions in the U.S. memo leave doubts on their surveillance or data surveillance program. And if you have any doubts, just assume that everything's being tracked. So there you go. And this is by Charlie Savage, dated September 6, 2014. Washington, the Justice Department has released a newly declassified version of the May 20 or 2004 legal memo approving the National Security Agency's Stellar Wind Program, a set of warrantless surveillance and data collection activities that George Bush secretly authorized after the terror attacks of 2001 on September 11th, which is actually coming up. Actually, probably should do a September 11th show, so stay tuned for that. I don't know if we'll get it out, but it might. <clears throat> but questions about the program remain. Okay, so here we go. I've got the clip. I pulled it off of YouTube, and I'll actually link to this. It's called The Program. This was back in 2012, so before Mr. Snowden came about, but we still didn't know what was going on, remember? We're just kind of floating along, and then thank God Edward Snowden showed up, remember former CIA asset, to tell us all what was happening, even though William Benny did years and years and years prior. So here is a uh, clip from, quote-unquote, the program. I was breaking, uh, breaking different codes and, uh, and data systems and uh, doing data analysis against uh, the Soviet Union. After 9-11, um, they took one of the programs I would, had done, or the back-end part of it, and started to use it to spy on everybody in this country. So and that, that was a program they created called Stellar Wind. That was the separate and compartmented from the regular activity that was ongoing because it was doing domestic spying. All the equipment was coming in. I knew something was happening. But then when my, the contractors I had hired came and told me what, what they were doing, it was clear where all the hardware was going and what they were using it to do. It was simply a different input. Instead of being foreign, it was domestic input. Somebody told me that they can listen to what we're saying by my having this, even if it's turned off. Yes. Here's the, here's the real grand design. Every domain, think of a domain as an activity, uh, a specific type of activity, phone call. Or banking is another domain. So if you think of graphing each domain, and then each graph then turning it in the third dimension, the, the trick now is to map through all the domains in that third dimension, pulling together all the attributes that any individual has in every domain, so that now I can pull your entire life together from all those domains and map it out and show your entire life over time so there you go <clears throat> but remember you know 
ah, we don't really know what the program's doing, even though we've had people like William Benny, who was, I think, number four at the NSA. Tell us exactly what was going on. But you know what? You'd have to actually not watch football and care about what was happening to your country. And then um, I was actually about to cover this article, but this is kind of a um, kind of similar to what I just talked about. But once again, you would have to do research and, and understand that this is stuff that's been going on for a very long time. And... Is there anything that we can do to stop it? At this point, I would say I would say no. So unfortunately, you know, it rely it actually the burden falls on the public. You know, we had people come out and tell us this stuff and then when people um such as myself went around explaining to other people what was going on, we got called tinfoil hat and all this other crap, but now there's there's really nothing that we can do to back this off. Because the the equipment's already in place, and if if they want to spy on you, they're going to spy on you. So what we have to do is do everything you can to make it difficult for them. At least that's what I do. You know, I'm I'm slowly, as you guys have noticed, if you are friends with me on Facebook, I'm slowly eh, not on there so much. Um, it's it's selective understanding and and selective use is the way that I would describe it. So understand what what your phone does. Understand what your computer does. Understand that they are both portals for the government to grab the data that you're using and possibly use it on you later as a a sense of methodology of control or putting you into a file and using it for predictive programming from your perspective. Because let's face it, humans in general, we're pretty predictive. I mean, I've said this before, but let's just take this for example. <clears throat> There's probably four or five different ways that you can get to work tomorrow on Monday. But you probably drive the same way every time. Now, why is that? Well, number one, it's comfortable. You can kind of you know, understand how long it's going to take you to get there. But the overarching theme is that we're creatures of habit. So whether you develop bad habits or good habits doesn't really matter. They're still habits. You're still going to repeat them. So with government, now that they have your habits, whether your browsing habits, your phone calling habits, texting habits, search habits, what have you, doesn't matter. Now they have your habits, your personal preferences, your ideas, so to speak. Because let's face it, when you type something into Google, that's an idea that you had. But now the government has your idea. And now they can put that into a database and they can... You know, use that as a as a way to predictively understand what you're going to do and even what you're thinking, which is kind of scary, which will bring us to the the end of the show a little bit later here, understanding what we're what we're up against and and why it's so so scary, because this has been somewhat of a plan. Let's not get too nefarious about it. <clears throat> And there's a reason that we all say, well, that's just that's just the way that things are going. Really? You ever heard people say that? When you talk about the singularity, when you talk about integration with computers, integration with you know the cybernetics world, the technotronic world, if you will. It's Aldous Huxley talked about it. It's you know, George Orwell talked about it. 
and I think I misquoted last show, so forgive me because I was listening to the rebroadcast to make sure there wasn't any ducking. I said that Double Plus Good was a um, Huxleyan um, uh, quote. It actually was not. It was it was um, out of 1984. So wasn't Huxley at all, but t- might as well have been. I mean, same kind of group, same Anglo-American establishment, same New World Order, same philosophy, same theories. So now we're running into this idea that, oh, we're going to merge with machines, and it's always going to be way, way, way down the road. But I'll get to that here in a little bit and show you how, how the, the trick is played, the, the rabbit trick, the mind trick. Because we're going to see computers interacting with, or excuse me, robots, highly efficient, highly very humanoid-looking robots interacting with human beings very, very soon. And why do I know that? Because they always tell you that it's coming way down the road. And then magically it's here. Oh, it's magic. Look at what we did. We had a breakthrough. No, you didn't. All right. So speaking of conditioning, let's move on to my next article. And this is entitled, this is actually by Infowars.com. Sometimes they do put out some great stuff and I will reference it when it happens but I'm not into the Islamophobia that that, um, that Infowars has turned into a little bit. But I understand why, because, hey, ISIS is actually a real threat, and that's pretty terrifying what those people do. I've seen the videos of them going down the road and just shooting up random cars, and it's, it's, it's disgusting. It's actually very terrifying, but I just can't believe that human beings act like that. But then again, that's what happens when you get people at a very young age and you indoctrinate them into an idea of thinking – an idea of militaristic thinking, uh, nonetheless. So, here we go. Hillary Clinton praises Kissinger's upcoming book, World Order. And it says, in a quote, Kissinger is a friend and I relied on his counsel when I served as Secretary of State. Oh, I'm sure you did. Because it's typically where you get marching orders from Kissinger and Associates or from the Council on Foreign Relations, which may as well be one and the same. So here we go. In a review of an upcoming book, World Order, likely 2016 presidential candidate Hillary Clinton praised author Henry Kissinger's compelling case for building a global architecture. Oh, yes. Well, why not? Writing for the Washington Post, Hillary fawned over Henry Kissinger's lifelong work, arguing that a no viable alternative for the future remains. Remember, they've already decided this stuff. And when I say they, I mean the power elite, the people that are over government. So the people that, that tell your government what to do, the people like Zygmunt Brzezinski and Henry Kissinger. and See, that's the thing that, that people don't understand, I guess, and that, that's a concept that we have to understand. Steering committees, um, um, think tanks, those are the people that run the government, not Barack Obama. Barack Obama is 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 a suit, an empty suit. I mean, it might be it might as well be Jeffrey Dunham or whatever that guy's name is that has all the puppets. It it might as well be because there's a reason that Obama's policies kind of resemble Jimmy Carter. Oh, maybe because Zygmunt Brzezinski was Jimmy Carter's political or foreign policy advisor, and now he's Obama's. You know, come on. 
So we have to get over this idea that what we see in the government, which once again, government is not really there, people. It is not really a thing. It is people in buildings. That's all it is. Government isn't an entity. It is a concept. And as soon as you get that in your mind, you can start freeing your mind and saying, wait a minute. But isn't that kind of slavery if I if I allow another entity or another person to dictate how I live my life? Then you're going to start questioning some more stuff. And I'll get into my theory about government here at the end because, once again, philosophical anarchist but very practical in the understanding of where we are currently. And I'll end the show with my anecdote about government. So here we go. Continuing. Sorry for the little diatribe there. But what else am I supposed to say? I mean, this is ridiculous. Kissinger's book makes a compelling case for why we sh- why we have to do it and how we can succeed. Oh, yes, we have to have global governance. Have to. And, and how it's going to succeed. According to Clinton, President Obama and herself have long worked to fulfill the same strategy as Henry Kissinger. Hmm, imagine that. His analysis, despite some difference over specific policies, largely fits into a broad strategy behind Obama administration's effort over the past six years to build a global architecture of security and cooperation for the 21st century. What translation, for all of you laymen out there, building a global architecture means building a global spy grid um, of security, which means of force, and cooperation for the 21st century, which means enslavement in the future. Yeah, and if you don't believe me, just um, just listen to this podcast in about two more years, and you'll see. Clinton went on to point out the chaos theory currently invoking the countries like uh, Iraq and Syria, ignoring her direct role in both of the countries' downfall. Oh, yes, because you can't take blame for anything. Deny, deny, deny. Isn't that right? The liberal international order that the United States has worked for generations to build – excuse me, uh, we should replace that with the Anglo-American establishment – has worked for generations to build and defend seems to be under pressure at every corner. Yes, because people are hip to the game plan, honey. We are becoming hip to it. Screw your pantsuit. We see through it. Clinton also used the opportunity to plug her back. Hard choices, yes, which she probably didn't even write, talking specifically about her role in reinforcing the global order. Mm-hmm. Ah, absolutely. And anybody that's not involved going and surrounding their country and overthrowing other nations that don't want to join and throwing in unelected neo-Nazis. Why not? I was proud to help the president and begin reimagining and reinforcing the global order that meet the demands of an increasingly interdependent age. Mm-hmm. And they set it up that way. Kissinger is a friend, and I've relied on him for counsel as I served as Secretary of State. When no hesitation, <coughs> sorry guys, I'm broadcasting from a basement, not a bunker, but a basement. So it's a little musty down here. Clinton went on to flaunt her hawkish nature in regards to foreign policy using isolationism buzzword um, – excuse me – using the isolationism buzzword often used to attack those who support a constitutional approach towards international or in, – or excuse me – towards the inter – sorry – internation of war. In the past, we flirted with isolationism and retreat, but we always heeded the call for leadership when it calls, when it was needed most, she said. 
It's time for another of our great debates about what America means to the world and what the world means to America. Very Orwellian. Clinton's utopian explanation for Kissinger's New World Order falls dismally far from reality. Despite her glowing review of the man himself, Kissinger's history is plagued with death, destruction, and a clear desire to erode national sovereignty. Absolutely, that's that's the plan, guys. In 2013, 1.7 million classified files known as the Kissinger Cables revealed that Kissinger's deep involvement orchestrating massacres around the planet. Mm -hmm. Likely absent from his book, the data dump reveals several criminal comments from Kissinger, including the illegal we will do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a little longer. A number of countries in South America and Europe have sought to question Kissinger about his actions during the Nixon and Ford administrations, and several individuals have also attempted to make citizens arrest, note InfoWars' Paul Joseph Watson. Um, most famously, Kissinger's National Security Memorandum 200, which is once again terrifying, uh, advocated the policy for using food as a weapon and lesser-developed third-world countries whose populations pose a risk to national security interests of the United States. So, yeah. There you go. Yeah, Memorandum 200 is actually absolutely terrifying. These guys are um, these guys are almost not human, and they see you as trash. Actually, they don't even see you as anything. They see you as like roaches. They see me as a roach, which I find offensive because I've read some of your stuff, dude, and you're a prick. So that's what I got to say about that. You 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 look like a um. You you kind of look like a, a little gargoyle, and it's kind of creepy. So any of these warmongering people, as they age, they look like demons. And I'm not, you know, talking from a, you know, from a religious sense. I'm just saying these people look creepy. So, all right, moving on to another warmongering creepazoid. As I sip my coffee. And this comes from, oh man, I'll have to put the link in there. Uh, it's called Brzezinski's Family Business, Cold War. Which of you guys have read Strategic Vision? I have not read The Grand Chess War, but I have read Strategic Vision. Once again, another book that's terrifying, and they talk about people like they're not even there. They talk about what the super states will do, and the, and the, and the world should do, and all of this other crap leaving out the idea that humans actually exist um, on the planet. And we actually have feelings and families and, and want to go on with our lives rather than having old bags of trash like him and Henry Kissinger forge through with a new idea. And I'll talk about what that new idea is here in a little bit. As President Obama prepares for his address at the NATO summit in Wales for chairing the National Security Council in September, the children of Zygmunt Brzezinski, the aging anti-Russian strategist who who advised President Obama during his first campaign, oh, excuse me, yep, he's not in there anymore, <laughs> okay, had been actively working to implement his Cold War schemes. Yes, because he talks about that, the strategy of tension, everybody. And if you don't know what that is, gosh, go listen to Peace Revolution's A Strategy of Tension, and it will freak you out. Very well done, by the way, Richard Grove. Very well done. While Zigner is 
has held no official role in President Obama's administration. His son, Mark, who has served President Clinton's national security advisor and advisor for Russia. Imagine that. And Eurasian Affairs has been the ambassador to Sweden since his confirmation of no, on November 11, 2011. From 1999 till 2001, he served as the director at the National Security Council. Oh, imagine that. Where he coordinated interagency policy formulation and advised the president and the national security advisor on the issues relating to Russia, Eurasia, the Balkans, and NATO. Mm. That's why we're doing the exact same thing that we did before the Cold War, but that's okay. Because Americans don't remember stuff, and you don't read books, and you don't study this crap. Just remember, football comes on in like two hours whenever this podcast is going to air. So, oh yeah, let's do it. Ambassador Mark Brzezinski has... See, this is why... This Before I continue here, this is what I was exactly talking about before. Zygmunt Brzezinski, who developed this plan, the strategy of tension with, with Russia to create a Cold War, so they could sell weapons and, you know... Freak everybody out and use all this, you know, poppycock in order to take all of our liberties and enslave us and then bring about through the strategy of tension and the fear and all this other crap that they always push. Instead of pushing love and understanding and enlightenment, they push fear, dumb down, and terrorize. So if you're looking from a purely philosophical perspective, they're evil people. But they probably don't see it that way. They see it as, well, I'm smart enough to understand how to control you, dumbasses. So I'm just going to control you, and we're going to do it this way because that will end up working out in the long run because we've decided what we're going to do. And I'll get into a little bit more of that here in a minute. So once again, this is a family of psychopaths and weirdos that uh, that run the world. So... Oh, and Zygmunt Brzezinski's daughter, I think, is on um, on MSNBC. But that's not state-run media when you have something like that. No, no, it's not. Ambassador Mark Brzezinski has used his position to urge Sweden to join NATO. Imagine that. Fearing that the Atlantic Council event in March to condemn Sweden's integration into NATO's military forces and pointing out that Swed- to the Swedish media in April that the renewed Russian threat – oh, yes, it's a Russian threat, all right, because they went and – Secured their bases and haven't done anything really offensive. And then the American press puts out this garbage of satellite photos that were taken back in 2005. But ah, don't worry about that kind of crap. Just buy the propaganda, love it, and shake in fear in your own house. Continuing. Threats to justify increased defense budgets. <laughs> Imagine that. As NATO or American support are not completely guaranteed. Despite being not being a full member, the Swedish military has participated in several coordinated NATO exercises this year. In March, 1,400 Swedish troops participated in Cold Response, a biannual drill hosted by Norway which simulates a NATO response to a hypothetical conflict between government and separatists in a natural disaster. In October of 2013, Swedish troops participated alongside NATO countries, Finland, Ukraine, in Operation Steadfast Jazz to train and test NATO force response in a highly ready and technological advanced multinational force made up of land, air, maritime, and special forces components 
that the Alliance can deploy quickly whenever needed. Hmm. Imagine that, just in time for a destabilization in the Ukraine. But nah, let's not think about that because everything in history is coincidental. In June of 2014, Swedish troops participated in two major exercises, Flaming Sword based in Lithuania and in and the 42nd annual Baltrop's drill where 13 nations from around the Baltic and North Sea, plus the Republic of Georgia, practiced air, surface, and subsurface mine warfare, and participants conducted advanced information sharing and crucial maintaining regional stability and maritime security in the region. Once again, this is all just to hype everybody that, that Russia is this huge threat. Not that I've got a love affair with Russia, but... Just look at the facts, people. Don't listen to the rhetoric. Look at the facts. Disseminate it for yourself. And then, oh my God, look at that. You actually have an opinion. Signor Brzezinski's other son, Ian, is currently a member of the Strategic Advisors Group of the Atlantic Council, a pro-NATO lobbying council created in 1961. From 2006 to 2011, he worked with the CIA. Oh, imagine that. And NSA contractor Booz Allen Hamilton from... 2001 to 2005, and then served as George Bush's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO policy. Hmm. Is anybody seeing a effing pattern here? Come on, people. Let's get these jokers out of there. First in 1968, or excuse me, 1986 and 1987, he worked for the National Security Council, and from 1991 to 1993... He was on the policy planning staff and the defense of the Defense Department. You mean the Department of War that changed their name, but that's okay. In August 14, 2014, Ian co-authored a NATO crucial summit for CNN, where he openly advocated for escalating the violence in the region, writing, the Alliance should be prepared to provide Ukraine lethal military assistance, including anti-tank weapons and surface-to-air missiles, to deploy intelligence platforms to improve the situational awareness of the Ukrainian security forces and military trainers. The Alliance should also resume military exercises with the Ukraine to help train their forces. All right. The first time Ian publicly sought to compel NATO to... Take a hostile stance towards Russia along with the Ukraine's new government, which was destabilized and put in by the West, was in March of twenty or March twenty fourth in the Washington Post piece entitled Three Ways NATO Can Bolster Ukraine's Security. You mean meddle in foreign affairs and poke the bear in Russia. In addition to approving lethal weapon transfers and increasing training exercises, which they probably are already doing, he suggested the remaining Russians of their role in Afghanistan, excuse me, reminding Russians of their role in Afghanistan, perhaps forgetting the blowback from America's decision to arm and train militant uh, Mujahideen soldiers hmm. back in the 1970s and 80s. But that's okay, because once again, you're going to have to study this stuff to get that. And I'm not talking down to my audience. Please, people, just have some fun. Look into the stuff. I'll actually put some posts in there and some some uh, some good little notes in for um, you can study the the birth of the Mujahideen, which was brought to you by Zygmunt Brzezinski in oh, 1979. I think I can't remember. I think it was right before Reagan. Anyway. Zigner's last child and daughter Mika, yep, here we go, and I actually haven't read this until I got air, so, hosting morning political gossip show on MSNBC with former right-wing congressman Joe Scarborough. Hmm. 
When not speaking about her cozy relationship with the administration officials, she provides a platform for a neoconservative policy architect, William Crystal, to call on another war with Iraq, as she did in, on June of June 17th. In May, Mika and Joe even presented the Republicans' opportunity to fraudulently attack President Obama and Hillary Clinton over Benghazi. Mm-hmm. Brzezinski himself has been quite busy. In addition to teaching American foreign policy at John Hopkins University Schools of Advanced International Studies and co-chairing the Center for Strategic International Studies Advisory Board, this year Zygner Brzezinski himself has written several columns appeared at a conference in Princeton's Wolfson Center confronting Russia, um, excuse me, entitled Confronting Russian I'm going to butcher this, Kavanyaism, and testified in January and July in Congress about the events in the Ukraine where he spoke of Putin exalting his mili- in, in his military seizure of Crimea while basking in an orgy of unleashed, um, good gosh, Shavonic sentiments. Chauvinistic, I think that's it. All right, whatever. Sorry, guys. On May 2nd, Zygner Brzezinski wrote a piece for Politico magazine, imagine that, entitled, and the reason I say imagine that is that is a extremely, like, highly New World Order publication. What Obama should tell Americans about the Ukraine, where he suggested turning Ukraine into a permanent urban battlefield, writing the Ukrainians will fight if they think that they will eventually get some help from the West, particularly in supplies and the kind of weaponry that is necessary to stage a successful urban defense. While Obama never gave the particular speech Brzezinski wrote, he did speak on the issue of on July of 29th when he announced a second round of sanctions against Russia, arms, energy, and bank sanctions. However, the language that President Obama uses to discuss Sovereignty and territorial integrity has closely mirrored Zigner's suggestions. Mm-hmm. Zigner served for President Carter's Security Administration from 1977 to 1981, who raised the was raised by an anti-Russian father, Trezny Brzezinski, who fought the Red Soviet Army in the final Warsaw Campaign in 1920, and later was the Council General in the German city of Limpa, Lipag. In 1937-1935. Zygner also married into a legendary family of anti-Russian political politics. His wife, um, Emily Bernays, was the granddaughter of Czech politician Vatu Bernays, brother of Czech Foreign Minister Edward Bernays, and, and Bernays was Prime Minister of Czechoslovakia before World War II in exile and then after the war. Benaz, um I don't know if I'm saying that right, but was overthrown in 1946 and tried to bring Czechoslovakia into America's Marshall Plan and a project to consolidate anti-Soviet power in Europe. Zygner's Klan activity in the State Department media and pro-NATO lobbying organizations make it certain that the family's tradition of Russophobia will continue to play a key role in American government as it executes its aggressive policy towards Russia. So there you go. And I'm sorry that I kind of stumbled and stammered my way through that, but um, it's very important to understand who these people are. And like I said, these are not 
just your average run of the mill. I'm working my way up. Zygner Brzezinski, obviously, I just read it. Married into the elite class. He married into the political class. So, so there you go. I mean, we're running into a an order of people that run governments that are outside of government. So, so where does that leave the role of government? So, once again, as I said before, the definition or my definition of government is a bunch of buildings in a centralized location with human beings in it. That, that make rules that we have to follow. Or they're going to use the weapon of the state to enforce those rules. So how do we break the paradigm? Where do we go from here, Jake? Well, I understand the anarcho-capitalist's idea and their utopia. Mostly using cybernetics at this point, or not cybernetics, but mostly using this idea that we're going to Leverage technology in, in order to create a a um, and a, a non-government facility or a excuse me a non-government order or something to that nature. You know, utilizing technology in order for to us for us to free ourselves from government. But don't then we become slaves to technology. So the question has to be asked: Where do we go? Well, I for one advocate. And yes, I will <clears throat> debate some of my fellow anarchists because, once again, anarchy does not mean um, no government. It actually means no rulers. So I would be okay with the idea of a limited constitutional government moving towards an anarcho-capitalistic society. And the only reason I say that is because we're so far down the idea – through the Prussian system of education, through the dumbing down, through the fluoride in the water, and the lowering of IQs, and the enslavement mentally of the populace, that it's, you can't interject anarchic, or anarchic tendencies because people don't want to learn about it. So what do we have to do? We have to do what the socialists do. We have to do what the communists do. We have to get control of the educational system. And what does that mean? It means possibly homeschooling your kid, not putting your kid in state-run educational brainwashing facilities for 15,000 hours. Now, people hear that and they think, well, Jake, do you believe that everything that they talk about is government? No, but they train you to follow directions, to follow orders, and not free think. I mean, look at what they've done here in Georgia. They're starting to remove recess from the lower grades. Now, what does that do? Number one… That keeps kids in the classroom longer because their theory, and this is once again not theory of people that actually study or have taught. These are theories pushed down by the central government. You know the the um, oh my god, how am I missing this? The Department of Education. So it's pushed down by a bunch of politicians and bureaucrats that say we think that the best way to improve our educational system is to make our kids better slaves, make them better mind slaves. Don't let them run around. Don't let them do what they want. Don't let them learn how they want. Don't let them learn what they want. Learn this stuff. This will make you successful. No. You're creating slaves. That is all you're doing. Because if nobody has any ideas, and if nobody has any room for creative thought, and nobody has any room for critical thinking, you are making a group of slaves. That is what you're doing. And so 
now that we're 30 and 50 years into this idea of this this Prussian model of education, this this dumbing down and teaching to the test and all this crap, which has been going on for about 20 years. See, the way that they sell it to the – it's very, very, very creepy. The way they sell it to the teachers is, hey, you're going to teach to the test. And the way that they sell it to the upper echelon and to the parents is that testing is what's going to prove your kid's worth to society. Let me explain something to you people. I work in sales. I've met a lot of salespeople that are dumb, but they can sell, and they can talk to people, and they can converse, and they can communicate. I've met salespeople that can't even read, literally cannot read, but they can sell stuff. Why? Because they can form a relationship with somebody. They understand how a product works. They understand how this thing works, and they know how to t- explain it to somebody in a in a um, in a manner that the that the end user or the person buying the product will buy it. So what is that 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 shuns in the face of everything that this Prussian model of education teaches us is that you need to be proficient in X, Y, and Z, and if you do that, you'll be successful. That's why all these kids that graduate from college now are completely lost because they graduate and they're like, I'm out. I'm out of college. Where's my job? Where's my job? Okay, dumbass. Guess what? They didn't give you any life skills because they want you to be on the dole. They want you to be a slave. They don't want you to compete with them. Remember, competition is a sin. They don't want you to compete at that level. And also, moving towards this idea of the eugenics practices and the and the sterilization. And believe me, people, if you think that eugenics stopped with the, with the Nazis, listen to our next podcast when it comes out. Because it didn't. There's a reason that we extrapolated and brought 35,000 Nazis over here. And it was not to play patty cake, and it was not to, oh my God, the Russians are going to get them. You know, that's just what they sell the public, because the public can understand that we're good, they're bad. They can understand that it's a very tribal, very primal, you know, very simple. But what they did was they brought them over here, set up the security state, and did exactly what the Nazis did before. And now they're starting to sell this idea once again. That hey maybe we could do cybernetics and hey maybe you know maybe we do need to you know curtail your your end of life care maybe we do need to do these things you know it's for the betterment of society do we really want these poor people breeding do we want that let's give them let's give them abortion that way they can choose and that's what abortion is people it's 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 not that I, I I'm against a a woman's right to choose I think that that's that's a very fallacious argument because. It's not the woman's right to choose. You already made your choice, unless in the case of rape and all that stuff. So let's throw that out. If you got knocked up and you're 22 years old because you had sex with somebody, you went to a party, you got you got wasted or whatever, or or you went to a party, you, you thought this guy was really charming, and, and you ended up sleeping with him in a couple of weeks, and then he leaves, and then you're pregnant. Well, guess what? You made a choice, and now there's your consequence. So you had your woman's choice. You had your choice. Now, now who gets to choose? You don't get to choose again. That's a policy that they push on you in order to keep population down. Do you see how that works? They give you the choice to abort something, to kill, to kill a person. Because it's not really a person. Eh, it's not really a person. <clears throat> so, and they'll probably in the future, going to run gene tests and all this other poppycock to say, 
well, your kid has a 87% chance of having nine fingers and a 13% chance of developing narcolepsy and a 4% chance that he's going to be absolutely mentally deficient. Would you like to abort this child? That's where it goes. It goes to eugenics model. Something they sold to the Nazis that the Nazis, <clears throat> once again, thought was great. Hey, yeah, let's bring back pure Aryanism. That sounds good. Even though Aryan isn't even a race, and it's just some made-up crap <clears throat> by a woman named Bovatsky. And then it was propagated through this idea that, that we need to recreate a, a, a pure race. And that, oh, the reason that the, the Nazis didn't succeed is because they interbred with the with the lower class and the lower ranks. That's what happened. That's where it all went wrong. You interbred with the blacks. Literally, that's what they said. Or the, the lower races. So, back to, back to the overarching point here. The idea of a world order is not safe for any of us. Once again, I would be for a world order that was brought through on the guides of voluntarism, on the guides of on the guides of, you know, using laws that are that are universally accepted and punishing people that break the law. Not maybe punishing the super rich that, you know, could probably kill somebody tomorrow and then get off like, well, I mean, he he did, you know, run into my bullet, so he actually I didn't pull the trigger. Well, I I pulled the trigger and then he ran in front of my bullet. So that's the thing that we have to understand. We are run by really bad people. And when I say we're run, I'm not talking about your government. Get over that idea. Get over the idea of people in buildings with suits on that talk and, and are put on TV. Screw them. They don't count. You've seen it. They don't count. Look at executive orders. They just come out. Oh, yeah, well, we got this executive order. We can spy on people. Oh, yeah, we're in a... We're in a war, so we got to spy on you, and this is never going to end, but we're going to keep this surveillance state in place, much like I talked about in the first of the show. The people that run the world do not reside in those stupid buildings. They reside in think tanks. They reside in academia, much like Signor Rosinski. They reside in corporations. They are above government. They set policy. They set procedure. And then they let people in on, hey, guess what? There's a little secret. We're going to try to do this. And, and here's, here's what we're going to tell the public, but, but here's what we're really doing. And if you read their books, you know what they're really doing. I mean, it's not difficult. I'll give you a couple books to read. I mean, it's not hard. I'll put... I'll put links into – I mean just go to my website, wearenotcattle.net, uh, under the, the far right-hand tab, um, under things that you should know or whatever it's called. Here, let me pull it up. It, it, I put four books in there that you should read or at least skim um, under something to think about – excuse me, something to think about, books that may interest you, and I will read to you. The, the titles of these books, and if you haven't read them, please read them. Read excerpts of them. Skim them. Something. America's Secret Establishment, An Order of Skull and Bones. 
Written by Anthony Sutton, a professor at Harvard, not some jamoke writing a blog. Okay? These are real people with real problems, with real beefs at the establishment. A Brave New World, written by <laughs> Aldous Huxley, little eugenicist. Don't worry about what he says because he was nobody. Actually, he ran the CIA's mind control program, and that was somewhat quasi-verified by um, Albert Stubblebind, who actually is the man who stare at goats. Ran that program. <clears throat> the Last Will and Testament of Cecil John Rhodes, which is probably the most important of all three of those. And finally, last but not least, Tragedy and Hope. All PDFs, all free. Go look at them. Read them. Please read The Last Will and Testament of Cecil John Rhodes, and you'll understand where all this stuff comes from. Okay? They're trying to build a European empire around the world. And then they wrap it in this idea of global governance, and this is not this is not a game. I mean, I don't even know I don't know what to tell you people. The more I learn about this stuff, the more it terrifies me, because I I, I run into articles like this, because the next step is the integration between us and, and the machines, and that's not me saying that. That's futurists. That's eugenicists. It's all of them. They're going to put us in like fantasy world or they're probably just going to kill us all. And and that's no joke. And for people that have actually researched this, you're sitting there nodding your head. And if you haven't researched it, you're laughing at me. But that's fine because you'll find out. You'll find out that a lot of the stuff that we've been telling you guys for years and years and years, we're all tinfoil hats and whatever that crap is. I told somebody six years ago or five years ago. That they can turn on your phone and listen to you, and they're listening to everything you do. You're tracking everything you do, and and the response from the person was, well, I think that they have the technology to do it, but my government wouldn't do that. Complete cognitive dissonance, mind control, psychopathy. What are you talking about? Do you Have you ever researched governments? This is what they do. They're control freaks. They're weirdos. They're not like you. Get that through your head. People around the world are not like you. Not everybody thinks like you. There's some really evil people out there. 5% of the population are psychopaths. 5%. So, what does that mean? What does that mean? Out of every 20 people you meet, one person. Bonafide psycho. Think about that. All right. I got to wrap this thing up. So I got one I got actually two more articles to go, but I'm not gonna be able to get to the brain to brain telepathic crap. Anyway, here is what I really wanted to get into and I'll elaborate and then we'll close the show. And you know, thank you for listening. Thanks for sharing the podcast. You guys made my last one a very big success. I've been gone for so long. I was um I was very touched that that I got so many downloads and so many views. So thank you so much. Um you know, share the podcast with people you know, people you love, people you like, and let's start having a real conversation. Not talking about who we're starting in fantasy football. Let's talk about the comp trollers. Let's talk about the people that actually do run the world and how we get them out of positions of power and political influence. Because it's supposed to be about it's supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be about me. Shouldn't we have a say in the decision of where all this stuff is going? They've already made the decisions. They're just kind of going through the battle plan now, and we're just sitting there passively accepting it. And on that note, how the next iPhone could finally kill the credit card. Oh, yes, because as I covered on the last show, 
a chip is, yeah, that's coming. Yeah, we got to ease you into it. Remember, humans will adapt to anything. So, yeah. Remember when 3G was such a big deal that Apple named its new iPhone after what it was then the new standard in mobile transmission? The iPhone 3G included or introduced in 2008 in the second iteration of pioneering smartphone in the in the name and the way of so much gloating it was or excuse me and in a way the name was such a glowing gloating as it was a tribute when cellular data mostly meant sending crude photos and maybe a song over our network the old standard was good enough but the radical new potential of connected mobile computing unleashed by the iPhone meant users would go with whichever carrier could provide them the fastest data. Apple forced the telecoms to give up their games, and and the competition has yet to cease. Meanwhile, another kind of network has stagnated. Despite the proliferation of mobile payment companies, the startups like Square and to, to a mobile revamped PayPal, credit cards remain the standard for paying in person and online. The money may move more may move digitally at least among the swipes of the card but it's still among the same old networks and kind of parallel the internet built to handle credit cards along before the web much less than when the iPhone existed for all for all anyone with an iPhone is concerned the way to pay will be apple but if, as predicted, the next generation iPhone includes a chip that makes it device scannable at checkout counters, iPhone could cap- catalyze the transformation of how money moves at it, that at least a substantial as it improves on how the data moves that Computo, excuse me, Computo forced upon the telecom industry. At first, the iPhone wallet likely would act as a surrogate for credit cards, the way that multiple data cards are used on the iPhone to transfer the data instead of a swipe. But over time, the point of holding those, holding on to any of those cards, which became digital abstractions once they were on the phone, will likely fall away. Fall away excuse me. Instead, for all who own an iPhone is concerned, the way to pay will be Apple. A better experience. The subject of Apple's unique power to change the way that payments work in the conversation I had yesterday with the co-founder of Dio, a Des Moines, Iowa startup building an internet-based alternative to existing credit card network standards to aim and moving money in real time. Send a dollar, get a dollar, and the way the internet works. The five-year-old company counts among its users the state of Iowa, which accepts several different kinds of tax payments via Daiwa. Oh, good, good. They accept slave payments through Daiwa. The imperative the iPhone created for the telecoms to upgrade their data networks holds a lesson for leverage Apple that has changed the payment landscape, says this Daiwa CEO, Ben Maline. And the next subsection is called Apple's already got a great mobile wallet. You should use it all the time when you go to buy something on iTunes. Or you use it all the time when you buy something on iTunes. They already have 800 million cards on file, Miles says. The kind of heft to back it up, Apple can then rely on its proven design expertise to entrance users into the payment world. They're going to give people a better experience that arguably 
probably more efficient or more simple with hardware that they control. Hmm. Yeah, buddy. In the world, it, it's Apple, not a credit card companies that have control, even if the iPhone wallets are being used to, quote, store those credit cards. The credit card becomes abstract and just another option to tap that otherwise or just another option to tap that otherwise stays hidden. Really, you'll pay with Apple. In a sense, iPhone users already do it. Apple already got mobile has a mobile great wallet and wait, excuse me. Apple's already got a great mobile wallet in that thing. You use it all the time when you buy stuff on iTunes. He just said that in the article. The next logical step. Of course, this is all logical. This is not pre-planned to remove God, this is so crazy. I don't even have time to cover why this is so bad. How much time do I have left? All right, I'm going to run. I'm already running over. I'll just run like five minutes over. Sorry, everybody. The next logical step, of course, this is all logical, not planned or anything. Once the credit card becomes that hidden, you remember which one you're connected to your iTunes account? It's only a short logical step of the credit card being eliminated altogether. And yes, of course, Apple could then use your credit card to get the <clears throat> credit card side of the game itself. Or it could integrate with a new kind of network, such as Daiwa. Daiwa is not, may not quite be ready for the Apple to act as Apple's payment backend, but Apple's wallet could be only help Daiwa with internet-based ways of moving money in general. Right now, consumers don't have much reason to use their phones instead of carrying the payment card in stores. Each mobile payment startup has its own platform, and merchants or merchants may or may not take it. Nearly all of those merchants, on the other hand, take credit cards. <clears throat> the ubiquity of the NSF-enabled iPhone, however, finally could force a break in brick-and-mortar stores to offer a pay-by-phone option. And once Apple peels back peels people away from the physical cards into a digital version of plastic, Dial and everybody else in the digital options will be on equal footing in the same wallet. Apple has the ability to succeed where Google and few NSF-enabled phones hit the market could never because Apple controls the hardware and the software. And because trendies like it and you guys are all chumps. Yeah, I actually am calling out people like right there, so... Yeah, you're all suckers. You, you you buy a gimmick that is a grossly inferior platform and a extremely locked down and super proprietary, but it's got a cute little apple on it and it's got nice colors and it sounds cool. Because I remember when the iPhone came out, I, people used to say, not my phone, my iPhone, my iPhone does this, my iPhone, get out of here. Bunch of suckers. Google supported <coughs> NFC in its own wallet, and but few handsets come out with the chips inside, since the payment terminals wouldn't take them, <coughs> and since few payment terminals would take them, and few merchants bother to accept NFC, since the few phones had it. It's uncertainly disappears. Excuse me, that uncertainty disappears as soon as NFC enabled iPhone six floods the streets. Oh yes, while it listens to everything you do and tracks and traces you and sends all your pictures to the cloud where they can get hacked or stored by the NSA and find out what you're doing. But that's okay. It's an Apple. It's trendy. And while an iPhone <clears throat> wallet won't mean the end of credit cards in any time, soon American Express and Visa reportedly have reached agreements to work with Apple. It's hard to see how it wouldn't spread faster or wouldn't hasten the future to free us from plastic. Yes. 
After all, a credit card is just a medium of transfer of data like the smartphone, except for unlike the smartphone, the credit card doesn't do anything else. Credit card companies themselves see this day coming. If Apple is expect as expected announces Tuesday that the iPhone will become the new way to pay the rest of the world might finally see the future too oh yes oh yes we will all see the future because the cashless society is the way of the future oh it's so terrifying people all right think about this would you trust a government to have access to a digital currency oh because what they could do is called bank bailouts, or they could freeze your phone, or they could freeze your wallet. And since you don't have any cash on hand, or any good or commodity that you could trade, you would then become what? You would become broke. But you got your iPhone. It's very cool. Listen, I'm not against technology. You guys have heard me say this before. But at least have some fail-safe people. At least have some firewalls against moving to an all-digital system, moving to an all – even an all-cryptic system creeps me out. Have some ideas for backups. Buy gold. Buy silver. Actually have cash. You know that little pieces of paper that we used to carry around all the time? Have some of that because you never know what's going to happen. If we lose the power grid, imagine that. Everybody's got their iPhone. We got our iPhone 6. I got my credit cards on here. I got my bank account on here. Oh, where'd the power grid go? And then go try to go to the bank because guess what? And you can research this for yourself. Banks around the world only have 3% of the money that's supposed to be in there physically on hand. So there you go. Well, that's it for the show, everybody. I'm sorry that I ran over and I didn't get to expand on a lot of this stuff, but be forewarned, cashless society is kind of scary. Uh, not that I'm against technology. Obviously, you could have one or two credit cards on there. That would be pretty cool. I use it already currently with Gift, so I don't know what these people are talking about. And Gift is a site that actually accepts Bitcoin, so if you're a Bitcoin miner or if you're one of those evil people that believe that the government shouldn't track and trace every process and credit card transaction that we make and purchase that we make, Use Bitcoin because it's now becoming widely, more widely accepted. And um, remember, check out the um, the podcast at One Step Beyond Me with myself and Josh Wiley. Um, <clears throat> like my Facebook page. Uh, follow me on Twitter. We are not cattle. The number one. And um, that's about it, everybody. Remember, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. I got to. Um, I got to bounce, but um, it's been fun. Thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with me. And um, we'll see you next time. Take care. Oh, you deserve your freedom.